Actually, I do enjoy working here. One of the perks of working here is I have been able to uh, hear a lot of your stories and a lot of your spiritual journeys. And I get to hear kind of how uh, some of you envisioned God maybe when you were younger or uh, maybe it was uh, God was taught to you in a little bit of a weird way or something like that. And then I get to hear how you are encountering how, uh, the God of the Bible. And just the, the change and some of the growth that happens through some of that. Um, and one of my favorite questions to talk about and to, to ask, and then I've asked this in a sermon before, is, man, what is the image you have when you think of God? And some of you in that description, you talk about God like he's this kind of old man with a gray beard, kind of a caricature that we've, that we've had maybe in the media. Uh, some have talked about how your experience with understanding who God is, is like he's this really grumpy guy with a lightning bolt ready to get you. And then some of you uh, occasionally have talked to me about God like he's Santa Claus, right? That if you're naughty, you don't get what you want. But if you behave well enough, you get some good stuff from him. I mean, I, I, I bring that up again because I think it's important that we kind of examine our concept of God. We, we examine how we picture God because how we picture God determines how we respond to him, doesn't it? Last week, uh, if you were at the park with us, Andy talked about uh, a passage from Mark chapter 12. And we read the same thing in Matthew and, and, and parts of it in, in Luke's gospel too. And he talked about how uh, God has called us to love him that he's the source of this love mission that he's been on. And, and, and just to kind of revisit some of that, and he gave us a little bit of context of this, right before Jesus' question about what the greatest commandment in, in all the scripture and all the law is, right before that, there's a group from these, these religious leaders called the Sadducees. And Sadducees kind of gathered around each other because they had a very specific way that they viewed God, a very specific picture of how they understood God. And they did not believe that there was any such thing as miraculous events in this natural world. And so for them, that meant there's no such thing as things like a resurrection. And so they were testing Jesus right before this passage about the greatest commandment. And we're told that Jesus, in this sort of kind of debate or argument or whatever, did such a phenomenal job of twisting that around that, they, that the, the, text, uh, excuse me, the text tells us that, that he silenced the Sadducees. Well, there's another group of religious people that were in the middle of that and listening to that, and they're the Pharisees. And a lot of us have heard of the Pharisees before. And they, uh, we, we tend to have a negative thought of who the Pharisees are, but they really did love God, and they really did believe that God intersected with the natural world, and so there were miraculous things, but they really liked to be right about it. And so they thought it was awesome that Jesus had silenced these guys that they've been arguing with over and over and over. But they were still struggling with Jesus in his kind of rising popularity. And so they decided that they were going to test him. All right, Jesus, since you silenced these guys, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responded to them, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they agreed with that. And they thought, yes, that is a satisfactory answer. But then Jesus kind of threw them a little bit of a wrench in the system. And he said, but the second is like it. And when he says second, he's not talking about second in importance. He's not talking about something that's not as great as what he just said. He's just talking about something that's in a list. He said the second is like it, and that's to love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, I heard a message on this a couple weeks ago, and the guy delivering the message said, what Jesus did was introduce a new commandment. But that's not true. This is actually a very old commandment. Um, I know all of you this morning probably uh, woke up, you opened up to Leviticus, and you did your morning devotions, didn't you? In Leviticus, we're told in two different chapters that we are to love one another. Um, uh, and, and sometimes it's said in kind of the negative way, don't hate one another. And Jesus, all he was doing was putting the spotlight back to where it should have originally been. So it might seem new to us to love your neighbor as yourself, but it's not new. It's just a very old commandment. But let's be honest. Loving people is confusing, isn't it? This whole concept of love is confusing. You know, it's the number one subject of every artistic outlook and expression that we encounter. The art that we see for decades and centuries tells us that love hurts, love's a battlefield, love changes. We can't help but to fall in and out of love. We're told recently that love causes butterflies in the gut, that love is blind and love will never be enough. Man, love, it messes with our brains and our emotions to a point that some of us have believed that love is strictly a feeling or it's strictly about emotions. And then you get guys up here like me who will tell you, man, if love is an emotion, you, you don't understand love at all. But at the same time, it does cause us to make us feel things, doesn't it? Like there are emotions that are wrapped up into this. It's confusing. It's messy. It's also one of our greatest needs. It's one of the greatest human needs. Some would say it's the greatest human need. Think about all the different ways we go about meeting that need. What are all the, I mean, just think about the crazy and wild things we do to satisfy this need for love that we have. And when we give ourselves some time and we give uh, some effort to some introspection, we realize that all of those ways, man, they fall short. And so we're left lost. I mean, if I have this major need in me to be loved, and really we have this major need in us to love one another, but I can't do it, or it's not being met, or it's not satisfying, man, what's wrong with me? And then we get guys like Andy last week getting up and saying, hey, we are to love the Lord your God with everything that you have. It's a confusing thing around us. I think in part... It's confusing because we have other forces that work against it, too. Not only is it confusing, I think uh, it, it's hard because when I look around, man, there's a lot of things and a lot of people that don't love me, and they work against anything that, that even seems like love. And they would even tell me that this message that we are to love one another, it has all kinds of strings and caveats that are attached to it. And we've got a lot of stuff working against it. I think there's more forces working against it, too. I think we have this force of fear that works against it. And I think fear overrides even hatred. Hatred is not the opposite of love. Fear is. I think fear is the greatest impediment of love. I think hatred is a symptom of that. But for some of us, again, if we're honest, fear has been a tool for discipline toward us. That, that it has been so ingrained in you and I that we begin to even project this punishing spirit on our perspective of God. I've heard of stories of people being abused growing up and that they were told if they didn't behave correctly that more abuse was coming or more fear was coming. And so the only thing to correct behavior or the only thing to correct how, what we're doing or what we're saying is to impose more fear. 
that our kind of motivation for everything is to make sure we don't get punished or hurt. It's a behave or else message. I think some of us are still carrying guilt and shame because we have violated standards that we may even hold dear. That we would stand up in a room like this and say, I believe this to be an important thing. And then when we go out, we break that kind of promise, that kind of declaration. And so with guilt and shame, we carry it with us. And we're afraid to even be honest about that because it's not love that's our motivation. It's fear. I've heard of stories of some of our church members coming out of adult clubs and bars. And some trying to satisfy this need that we have for love with images on a screen. And none of it is working, and now we're even more confused about love altogether. How many relationships, marriages, friendship groups have we been in that have been spoiled by poor concepts of fear? But I got to tell you, the love that Andy talked about last week and the love that we're encountering in the Scripture this morning teaches us that Jesus transcends fear. We're told in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's one of my favorite ways to start a sentence in the Bible. If you're in any of my classes, you know that I would highlight this. But God. Our New Testament is full of big buts, and it's a big deal. But God. Every time we read, but God, we ought to see the gospel in that. These big buts are telling us we were going this way. But God intercepted, and he brought us back toward him. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It also demonstrates that the God that Andy talked about last week in the part, the God we're looking at this morning, shows us that God is worthy of our love. But love for God is not measured by a feeling. It's measured by our love for one another. And the first disciples, they took this quite literally and quite seriously. I mean, imagine being in the early church, trying to figure this whole church thing out, this whole God thing out, this whole Christ thing out, where we would come together like this, and we're all going to open our Bibles, and we're going to try to figure it out from what has been written. And they didn't have that then. They're trying to figure out what does it mean to even love God with everything that we have now. And so they get these letters, and they, they, they start praying about this and start trying to figure this out. It's got to be more, even more confusing then. But we get to open this up, and we get to explore the God who has called us to love and the God who has shed his love on us. And then he says the way that we do this is by loving one another. And so we're going to look at a passage today. It's in 1 John. Don't go to the Gospel of John. Flip a few more pages ahead in your Bible. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. Back up just a couple pages. First John, we're going to look at chapter 4. I'm going to read a pretty lengthy text for us, but here's the deal. I know that it's lengthy. I know there's a lot of things that are in this, but I promise you, for those of you that were at the park last week, I will not sing this text to you, okay? So I just want to express my love for you in my reading ability and not my singing ability. So we're going to look at First John. We're in chapter 4, and I'm looking at verse 7 to start with, okay? So follow along. Beloved, let us love one another, John says, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, and God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected 
in us. And by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, his love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen or cannot see, or excuse me, for, let's start that over. For he who does not love his brother for whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. See, I told you that the apostles took this command to love one another very seriously. And because I know all of you are dying to know some of this information, I'm going to tell you some of this. In these 15 verses that we just read, 27 times we read the word love, almost two times per verse. Love is used 46 times in all of 1 John, and almost 60% of them are used in the passage that we just read. In John's gospel, Love is used 56 times in 879 verses. And one more, 8.5% of the uses of this type of love that we read in the scriptures are used in these 15 verses. Maybe the command to love one another ought to be taken more seriously, intentionally, selflessly. So, how are you doing with loving one another? When you hear John's words to a confused church, do these verses describe you? We talk a lot about the evidence for God, but are you living evidence of a loving God? Some might say, yeah, but there's some people around me that are unlovable. Well, I think I fit that description every now and then. Some might say, but there are people that do horrible things. Somebody might have said that about me at one point but you don't know what they've done to me. Maybe not. You're probably right. But I do know that the love that God has overcame more than you and I will ever know. If some were to ask you how, if, if some were to ask you how we are doing relationally here at SRCC, how would you answer? You know, on the one hand, I think there's a lot to be excited about around here. I think we have an incredibly eclectic group of people from a variety of backgrounds, particularly religious backgrounds. I hear SRCC spoken like someone's home way more often than I can ever count. We use terms like family and brother and sister around here. And there are so many ministries that are caring for people around the clock. There's more things that are happening ministry-wise than you will probably ever know that if you were to come up here at any given time, you're probably seeing some people meet together to express some of that. But I wonder, how deep is that love? Are we satisfied with the levels of intimacy and care and prayer that we experience together? Can we have difficult conversations with one another? Is our expression of love 
out of convenience? Or is there sacrifice that comes along with that? Is ours the kind of love that the world around us would stand up and take notice of? So you get the sense that what John's talking about here isn't about polite smiles and friendly handshakes and token displays of affection. He's writing about a love that's distinctive, that's different from any other love anywhere else in the world. It casts out fear and can't be captured merely by words. It's an invaluable love, one that is measured deep in the recesses of our soul. I will point out just a couple of things that he, that he shows how distinct Christian love is. That when, 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 when God says, when Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, there's a distinct way that we measure that kind of love. I think he points out that Christian love is distinctly measured by its motives. We've all received something with strings attached, haven't we? Like we've received a gift, we go, man, this is too good to be true. What else is coming with it? Matter of fact, I think that's happened so often that that's sort of the expectation anymore, that that's sort of the norm that we get to operate with. Sharon Hargrave is the executive director of the Boone Center for the Family, and she points out in their research that intimacy in our society has been defined more and more as need meeting. She calls this an error that steers us further from, uh, from what it can actually be, causing us to eliminate relationships that are unsatisfying rather than addressing problems with what comes from genuine love. See, the love that John talks about is not motivated by meeting needs. John described the love that we have one another for one another is motivated by the love that God has for us. We were in some conversations with, uh, as a staff earlier this week, and some of our staff were talking about their experiences being uh, waiters and waitresses uh, as jobs, kind of growing up in high school and things like that, and talked about coming and serving a, uh, Christians at a table, and instead of leaving a tip, they would often leave tracts, or they would leave Bible verses or something like this. In our family, we have a word for that. We call that Jesus juking, that instead of actually expressing love or expressing or demonstrating or modeling the Christian, Christian message, we sidestep the responsibility, and we just throw the word Jesus in, and it makes everything okay. How many of us have experienced God in those terms, in those ways? John says that God is love. He says it twice in that passage. And if God is love, then John said, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. What motivates your love? Rather than scaring one another into heaven, rather than shaming one another into heaven, rather than even swerving each other into heaven, why can't we love one another there? I know that that's the story that I have. There are so many reasons I gave the people who initially decided to show Christian love to me. I gave them so many reasons to not do that. They should have kicked me out of youth group well in advance of when I did. But they loved me anyway. And some of the things I would say when I was around them, my youth minister would tell me, I'm just glad you're here. I'm glad you're saying it here. Andy said a few months ago when he was telling his story, he said, all I want is for you to know the God that I know. And John told us that God is love. Well, see, Christian love is also distinctly measured by its cost. We heard last week from John's gospel that no greater love than this, that he who would lay down his life for his friends. John says it in our letter. He says it in chapter 3, he says, little children, let us not live in word or talk, but in deed and truth. 
My guess is that there are very few of us in here that don't think loving each other is a good thing. If I were to come up here and say, guys, here's the message, it's to love one another. Every, almost every one of us would say, yeah, I agree to that. I understand that. That's a good thing. But are you just talk? Is it just words? Is love just a word we use to sidestep real expression? Can you imagine God having this conversation with the Trinity? I know this sounds weird. This is what goes on in my head throughout the week, so good luck. But think about this. God having a conversation with the Holy Spirit, having a conversation with the Son, which I understand is just God having a conversation with himself. I get it, okay? But, hey, Spirit, I really love those people down there. And the Spirit responds, yeah, some of them are all right. But, man, some of them work really, really hard to kick you out of this party. And he turns to his son, hey, son, I really love those people down there. And he says, yeah, but some of them are really mean. What are you going to do about it? Oh, nothing. I just wanted you to know that I love them. And if, loved, if God said that he loved us but didn't follow up with his actions, what good is that love? Aren't you glad that in this whole love command that we aren't called to pick which ones deserve love and which ones don't? And convenience cannot be measured cannot be the measuring stick that we have by which we love. Living is evidence of a loving God. It's going to cost us. For some of us, it will cost us money. For some of us, it will cost us time and our resources, heartache. For some of us, it's going to cost us some deep, introspective thought. For some of us, it costs us self-doubt. For some of us, it's going to cost us questions that are really hard for us to ask of ourselves. But I got to tell you, you're in good company because it costs the Lord the same. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was all out of an act of love. Well, we read in John's letter here too that not only is, is it distinctly measured by our motives and distinctly measured by our cost, but Christian love is distinctly measured by its value. In 19 through 21, this is what we read again. We love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, He's a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he, has not, who, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. You see, choosing not to love someone because it's inconvenient or for whatever other reason is choosing not to love someone for whom Christ died. There's no rank and file in the family of God. We love because we were first loved by God, not because we like that or because we think that this is a good idea, or because I have chosen to love you. Each and every person we see is delica delicately created by God for the purpose of being loved by him and for the purpose of giving him glory. Every person we encounter is a vessel for worship. Some just might not know it yet. We're called to love. I don't know about you, but I look around, and our human value system stinks. What we deem valuable and unvaluable and who we deem valuable and unvaluable is not trustworthy because our mechanisms are subjectively selected and they're objectively broken. What the world says is valuable is designed only to make you feel less than you are. It makes us feel like we're perpetually trying out for some kind of team or some kind of accomplishment that cannot be achieved. God, on the other hand, finds great worth in you. We love because he first loved us. It's one of my favorite things I get to tell people. Jesus did not die for worthless things. 
he, find great, he found great value in you and continues to find great value in you. And he continues to find great value in the people that you encounter. Maybe you needed to hear that. Maybe you need to start believing on that. And once, that you, once you accept that you are accepted by the creator of the universe, then you can begin to see others in the same light. One of my favorite passages, and this is where we're going to be ending on, is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's telling the Corinthian church pretty much the same message that John had for his church. And he says in chapter 5, starting in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. You see, we love because God loved us, but he didn't end his love there. He empowers us to go and do the same for one another. The greatest commandment to love God with everything we have is the greatest because it empowers us to love like Christ did. If there's anything our world is lacking, it's genuine love that is motivated by God's love for us, that reflects the cost of God's love, and it values each and every human being the way that God does. We are people who let the love of Christ control us. And you and I are fully aware that life is full of difficulties and just plain tough at times. But one thing we have to reconcile, and there's no getting around this, all of us must not just work this out in our minds, but do the difficult task of allowing this truth to move from our heads into our hearts. There is no such thing as a love for God if there is no love for each other or for those that we may deem unlovable, because that is exactly what God did for us through Jesus Christ. I'd like to pray for us. And as I'm praying, I'm hoping that there's somebody that comes to your mind that, man, I need to intentionally and sacrificially go love that person. And if that's a difficult thing for you and you need some help with that, we've got our prayer room over there. There's going to be some fellows over there, some folks over there that just love to pray with you about that. And for maybe, for some of us in here, the reason why we struggle so much to love those around us is because we haven't fully received the love that God has for us that was through the cross of Jesus Christ who conquered the grave and rose three days later. And if that's the truth that you are ready to accept, we want to help you out over there too. So just make your way over to the prayer room. But I'm going to pray for us as we do that. Let's pray. God, your love is so much greater and bigger than we can ever fathom or imagine. But Lord, honestly, we talk about love so much in the church that for some of us, it's just a trite and normal message. But your, your love is, is so subversive to everything the world has to offer. It's so radically different and distinctive than anything that we have ever encountered. Lord, I pray that that would sink into our hearts, into our souls, into the very beings of who we are. God, would you help us who are wrestling with the love that you have for us and know that you have found us valuable enough to die for and then to raise again three days later. Lord, I'm praying for those that have their eyes closed, their heads bowed right now, who have a name or a face that are specifically popping up into their mind. 
of someone that they need to demonstrate Christian love to. God, would you help them? Would your Holy Spirit go ahead and, and, and prepare those conversations and prepare those actions and those deeds and those that truth? Lord, that when we find it hard to love around us, we would be reminded that we are sometimes love, are hard for others to love as well. God, that we sit in the same camp of those that you have died for. God, give us the courage to do the tough thing to love and not to continue to put our heads in the sand when it's not convenient for us because that is not what you did for us. We love, Lord, because you have loved us first. And it's that love we want to celebrate this morning. So thank you for that. Give us the courage to do that. And would you go ahead of us so that we know that we're going where you are. We love you, Jesus. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.